Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Happy New Year, everybody. It's the first week of the 2024 sports calendar, and even though football season may be over, and even though our bet of blue Gatorade at the Super Bowl dunking Andy Reid did not cash, we are still giving you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you head to Bet Online Sportsbook with the link in the description to this episode and use our promo code BELIEVE. Use that 50% welcome bonus to bet on basketball. Maybe you're into the pro, maybe you're into the college, maybe you're into Caitlin Clark setting the all-time scoring record in the history of college basketball. However you choose to bet, 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping on into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast and podcasts aren't live it's the whole purpose of this podcasting thing you can listen however and whenever it is that you so choose and we greatly appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be choosing welcome 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 everybody it is a fantabulous fantabulous thursday february 15th according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you might be listening to the Take It Easy podcast. And we know that you guys are listening. You guys continue to come through for us with all of that continued support, even as we've shrunk our recording schedule down to about three days per week. We are so greatly, greatly appreciative of all of you and your continued support of this show. We got a great show planned for you today. In a little bit, we're going to talk about the 49ers, the losers of the Super Bowl. We did a Super Bowl breakdown on Monday, and uh, there there was a bunch of analysis about the game and the Kansas City defense, but we haven't talked a ton about the 49ers. They fired a defensive coordinator on Wednesday, and so that's a nice segue to give us a better perspective about where the 49ers go from here, because if we had recorded this on Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon and, and posted it Wednesday instead of doing the Sports Radio Wednesday with our friend Juju... If we had posted that yesterday, we would have had no idea that the defensive coordinator, Steve Wilkes, had gotten fired by the 49ers, and I think that podcast would have aged much more poorly. We will get to the 49ers later on in the show, but first, I've been watching a whole lot of sports shows on YouTube, a little bit of television, a little bit of radio. I obviously work at a radio station. Been consuming a lot of sports talk stuff the last three days since we hopped on here. 
threw on these microphones and chatted. And a lot of people, a lot of people are coming around on the Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback to ever play the game conversation. A whole lot of people are calling him Michael Jordan. A whole lot of people are pointing out the fact that Patrick Mahomes has now prevented a generation of star quarterbacks from even making it to the Super Bowl. Part of that is that they all play in the AFC. Part of that is Patrick Mahomes has made four of the last five Super Bowls and there is very little room for Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, and Josh Allen to find any lane and caveat. And then you look up and, oh, by the way, Josh Allen's now 28, Lamar Jackson's about to be 27, and Joe Burrow's about to be 27. Like, they went from the Wonder Kid quarterbacks to middle of their primes pretty quickly, and that tends to happen in the NFL. And especially with Cincinnati, because Cincinnati has been to the mountaintop. Joe Burrow's won five, advanced through five playoff rounds, if my math is correct at this point. He made it from the... No, I think... Yeah, no, he's won five playoff rounds. He's advanced through five playoff rounds in his career. And, and Lamar Jackson's advanced through four. And Josh Allen's advanced through five, I want to say. Josh Allen's advanced five rounds in the playoffs because they went AFC Championship game and then three divisional round losses. So these guys have been advancing far in the playoffs. They just have not had one year where they've advanced three times in the playoffs apart from Joe Burrow, and that's what essentially separates Joe Burrow from Lamar Jackson and, and Josh Allen in terms of their career successes. I've seen a lot of people coming around to the thing that we've been saying since Kansas City won their first Super Bowl four years ago, which is this team going to run the NFL for 15 years because they have the greatest quarterback to ever play the position and the greatest offensive head coach in the history of the NFL. Didn't need the the sample size of these last four years to prove it. We kind of prognosticated that that was going to happen. It's part of why we're big Kansas City fans. And so I was thinking we'd come in here today and we would talk all about this generation of quarterbacking and how it compares to previous generations. Maybe some people want to do the deep dive on the Michael Jordan and, and the people he prevented from winning a championship. And one of those signs of greatness is the people you prevent from winning championships, just like LeBron James did for an entire decade out in the Eastern Conference, whether it be the Celtics, whether it be the Bulls, whether it be the Pacers, he kept all those teams from winning in the East. He kept the Celtics from winning like twice too. It was like three different, two or three different versions of the Celtics team LeBron prevented from winning a championship too. But that's neither here nor there. We thought we were going to come in here and start doing that conversation about quantifying greatness and things of those sorts with Patrick Mahomes, even though, you know, we've been saying it for four years. All your problems become a whole lot easier when you have greatest quarterback to ever play the position and greatest offensive head coach in the history of the sport. It makes all the problems they've had to adjust to a little bit easier. There's no greater example of that than them winning the championship with the worst Kansas City team that they've had in the six years of Mahomes being there. Quantifiably, the worst team they've had in the six years of Patrick Mahomes being there. That's what I thought we were going to come in here and talk about today. And then we had a mass shooting at the Kansas City Championship Parade on Wednesday. And now we got to put a pin in all the silly football stuff because real life has entered the conversation. And opportunities that we get to show sports reflecting society, we're going to take that opportunity. We are going to run with it. Been doing it for years. Been doing it with topics 
I mean, I guess this is a life and death topic, so this is pretty bigger at this point, but I think it's just been worn down by this point. Like, so many people have been worn down by the conversations around gun violence in America. The reason I know this is because you're not seeing national news stories that talk about this type of mass violence as much anymore. School shooting still exists. Gun violence still very much exists, but what's happening is that they're turning more towards local news stories. It's become numb to the point where these are local news stories and not national news stories in the way that a school shooting would have been back in 2015 or 2018. There's a certain numbness that comes around to it. And I say a certain numbness to this as an important context because I've mentioned this before, whether it be the the mass shooting that was out here in Sacramento, uh, the mass shooting in Buffalo from a few years ago, or any number of times we've talked about gun violence in America here on this podcast. My biggest issue with talking about gun violence in America and mass shootings is that my coping mechanism to a lot of this stuff for years has been to desensitize myself to it because desensitizing myself to it makes it so that there isn't a, fr- a, a deep, infuriating frustration around gun violence in America. A deep, infuriating frustration every time this becomes the topic of conversation. Every time common sense fails to break through. Every single time that the simplest measures that could reduce 60% of the simplest of legislation and measures that could prevent 60% of the mass shootings that we see here quantifiably can be proven to protect 60% of the people who will be shot and or killed in gun violence incidents. Like 60% of the cases could be cured, but could be prevented by basic background safety checks, basic restriction laws, and no, uh, not having concealed carry uh, laws in a lot of these States. Basic, basic cases like that and that's just that's just the first step in my book in my book you could take it a whole lot further to wipe to go from taking away 60 percent to taking away 98 percent. but just the most basic of steps in the first place the threshold hasn't even been crossed in a lot of these cases and so my defense mechanism my coping mechanism for years on a macro level has been desensitize myself to it Because if you desensitize yourself to it, you can become a bit nihilistic and look at it as a woe is me type of situation and talk about how there's a failure to protect young people every single time something like this comes up. Because we've mentioned this before as well. Like The thing that was the tipping point for me on that, and this will relate back to the micro level of this specific one in Kansas City, is when you have 50 people shot and killed at a gay nightclub in Orlando in 2016, which at the time was the largest mass shooting ever in American history, and that's now been surpassed. When you have that, America's got a deep-seated history of homophobia to the point where it will be viewed as a tragedy, but people will move on without feeling the urge to make systemic change. There's enough homophobia rooted in American history and rooted in the foundation of the country that people can view that as a tragedy and a few weeks later they'll move on. It won't be a movement, it'll be a moment. When you have 12 black people who are killed at a grocery store in Buffalo, as was the case a few years ago, 
there's enough structural racism in state governments and in federal governments across 200 years of American history to make it so that becomes a moment and not a movement. Like, I understand in those cases, these will be tragedies and they will be moments of reflection, but they won't start a movement. Because there's just a deep-seated history of homophobia and racism or anti-Semitism when we talk about synagogues getting shot up or Islamophobia when we talk about mosques getting shot up. The one that was kind of the tipping point for me is when, you, when you're willing to execute 25 children at an elementary school, as was the case at Sandy Hook when I was in the sixth grade. I'm now a soon-to-be 23-year-old adult. That happened when I was in the sixth grade. And when you're willing to have 25 kindergartners, first graders, and second graders be executed at an elementary school, and that's not enough to create a movement, even 10 years later, that's the tipping point on it where I'm like, oh, it's just not going to happen. At least not in this generation. Or the next generation, because we're now an entire generation through that now. Like I said, I was in the sixth grade when that was going on. I'm now out of school. There's a whole new generation. There are, there are people who I went to school with who are old enough to conceive children who will be the same age as the kids who were executed at Sandy Hook. So now we're in a whole new generation beyond that now. And at least in, in my generation and what seems like the next generation, this shit just ain't gonna get solved. And if it ain't, and I know it sounds like, oh, it's, there, there's not a lot of hope there. And there's obviously grassroots movement of people doing great work. John Oliver did a great episode that, that highlights some of those groups. I'm sure you're going to find a lot of people who come forward in the aftermath of what's happening in Kansas City. Um, the, from the Parkland school shooting back in 2018, the, the parents and kids at Parkland are doing incredible work in trying to move gun safety laws forward. They, those, those groups are doing incredible, incredible jobs with the platforms that they've been given. But I bring that up to say that, like, that's the one that I'm like, oh, there's there's no defense of that one. There's no, like, nihilistic, cynical look at the 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 look at the structures of American history and structural racism and structural homophobia, structural misogyny, uh, structural anti-religious sentiments about Jews or, or Muslims like there's there you can point to all of those things and, and explain away some mass shootings in America as moments of tragedy but not enough to spark movement when it's happening with like just general five and six and seven year olds and that ain't enough to spark a movement there is there's nothing I can point to you that's gonna start a movement nothing nothing especially in this 2024 where we're like actively trying to take away health care for like 9-11 victims the families of 9-11 victims are, are having to fight for their right to health care. It's just, you know, at a certain point, you just look up and you think, yeah, it's just not going to happen in this generation. It's just not. And there are dozens of incredibly... Pro, pro, there are causes, dozens, if not hundreds of causes that absolutely deserve the time and attention and people who are willing to carry the torch to advance a cause that they will never, ever see the true success for. Fighting for equality and fighting to be on the right side of history is a lonely, difficult battle. And very often the people who are fighting on the right side of history and fighting for people in the minority 
will never see the full end of the progress that they are looking to achieve. It takes real brave leaders who are willing to move causes forward and a lot of time, effort, and dedication. And I made the call about five, six years ago, that it, or maybe it's closer to three years ago. I shouldn't say five or six. It's really closer to three or four years ago. I kind of made the call that gun violence in America doesn't directly affect my own life. I live in California where there are stricter gun laws than you have in most of the states in America. And so because it's not something that directly, I, I don't know anybody in my life who's like an active gun toter, essentially. And I think because it doesn't directly impact my life, I kind of made the call that that's one of the causes that I will be an ally for, but I can't be on the grassroots trying to move that cause forward because it's just so heartbreaking and just so infuriating. And there is so little rationality behind the gun violence stuff. And so I bring that up to just say I can be incredibly cynical in a lot of these cases because that's the coping mechanism that I look at to be to justify a country that says for multiple generations now we're going to let 20 uh 5 6 and 7 year olds just get execution style mowed down in a in a classroom and we're just not going to do anything about it or we're going to have 50 people just get executed one after the other at a gay nightclub in Orlando or we're going to have 57 people get executed at a music festival in Las Vegas or any of the hundreds of mass shooting cases on down the line where people's lives are permanently impacted. And now I bring all of this up to bring it to Kansas City today. And it's just the simple fact of like, this is this is our existence at large gatherings, especially large public gatherings like championship parades. Know your exits, know the ways to get out of some of these places, especially closed door venues, which I believe the Union Square in Kansas City is the train station that's underneath the parade or like the train station that is underground around the parade route so this was more of an enclosed space around the union square if i understand that to be correct when you're in closed spaces know your exits when you're in mass gatherings know that at a moment's time there could be separation from you know children things like championship parades are high profile enough that people are going to bring weapons potentially execute acts of terror these are, these are realities that exist now. These are realities that are part of the day-to-day -day life that we go through. And, and we're going to get to relive that conversation and relive that horror again and again. Especially because Kansas City is going to be back again in the not-so-distant future. And the next time Kansas City has a championship parade, you know, I know they've had three of them in the last five years and all that stuff. But the next time Kansas City's back in that championship parade scenario, don't think that this isn't going to be at the front of mind. Even if Kansas City doesn't win next year, like even if even if the San Francisco 49ers do end up winning their first championship in 30 years, or I guess, yeah, it would be 30 years next year. Even if they do win their first championship in 30 years and you have a parade around San Francisco or Santa Clara, or San Jose or wherever the fuck they're going to do a championship parade in San Francisco. Like, even if you have that large gathering of the of one of the most national fan bases winning their first championship in three decades, you know that what happened in Kansas City is going to be at front of mind. Regardless of what happens, this is the reality of these types of championship parades. And this isn't even the first time something like this has happened. There have been shootings at World Cup parades. There have been shootings at uh, championship parades in Europe. Uh, there have been shooting... I can't remember which... Which... Championship parade it was years ago, but there was a 
a person who was shot and killed. It wasn't a, a mass shooting where like a dozen people are injured, like what we're talking about at Kansas City, but it's high profile enough, and especially you know we know the results now. It's it's a, it's as high profile as it gets for a parade. It is the parade of parades in America because that Kansas City San Francisco Super Bowl we now know was the most watched television event in the history of America. In the history of America, it is the most watched television event ever. And the parade that follows won't get any more high profile than that. And so you look up and you have a shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Championship Parade and you are reminded that this is the existence of America that we have lived in for a decade. Whether it's 4th of July parades, whether it's championship parades, whether it's concerts, music festivals, nightclubs, banks, grocery stores, Gotta know your exits. Gotta have a plan for what's gonna happen when the unthinkable happens and you are not protected. It's the reality of the world we live in because now for multiple generations we have decided that we are okay with children being executed one after the other in classrooms. And that's the tipping point that I look at and say if it's gonna happen there, it's going to happen at a train station in Kansas City during the middle of a championship parade which half a million people are gathered around the square. All right. Transition, 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 transition. Okay, cool. We got it. Check that box off. Let's talk about Steve Wilkes getting fired by the San Francisco 49ers. Within 48 hours of the Super Bowl, within 36 hours of Kyle Shanahan saying he expected everyone to be back next year, 49ers done fired their defensive coordinator. And I was like genuinely surprised by the 49ers firing their defensive coordinator. Because I think the most likely scenario is that they promote Chris Kacarek their very well-liked defensive line coach to be the defensive coordinator. They go the in-house option of Salah to D'Amico, one year of bringing in Steve Wilkes, thinking that Steve Wilkes would be the future NFL head coach that he probably should be. Didn't go quite the way that it expected, and now maybe they continue the promoting internally situation by bringing in Chris Kacarek as the defensive coordinator. When it was talked about that Chris Kacarek might end up getting one of these DC jobs somewhere else. But I think that's probably the route that San Francisco goes is to promote Chris Kacarek as the defensive coordinator. There's there's just not that defensive coordinator option on the table for San Francisco this late in the hiring cycle. I saw some people were talking about the 49ers were going to go out and try and hire Belichick. And I looked at that and I was like, you mean Steve Belichick? Like you want to go hire Steve Belichick from, from the University of Washington? Because cause ain't, no, ain't no way in this world... That Bill Belichick is going to be a defensive coordinator. Bill Belichick told the Falcons he wouldn't be their head coach without having say over personnel decisions. Okay? Bill Belichick is too good for your San Francisco coordinator defense your San Francisco defensive coordinator job. I know San Francisco 49ers fans think very, very highly of themselves. But trust me. 
you have a better chance of hiring Steve Belichick than you do of hiring Bill Belichick. You might have a better chance of hiring the other son of Belichick. I think he's still with the Patriots. You might have a better chance of hiring that son instead of hiring goddamn Bill Belichick. You can, At least you can give Mike Vrabel a call. Like, the worst Mike Vrabel can do is tell you no. Bill Belichick ain't taking that phone call. His agent is not reaching out to San Francisco to pursue that job. Shit just not gonna happen. But yeah, San Francisco probably goes the route of promoting Chris Kacarek to defensive coordinator. Because I think that's just the best option they have on the table at this stage of the game. Unless they go to the college route and try to hire someone. But even the good college defensive coordinators have already been scooped up. I, Jesse Minter over there with uh, with the University of Michigan. He's over there with the Chargers now. Uh, the, the defensive coordinator with the Seahawks. They brought him over from uh, from the college ranks. Or is that the offensive coordinator? Maybe the, maybe the offensive coordinator is, is going to the Seahawks. The point being though, like like... Even the good college defensive coordinators are kind of scooped up at this point. I don't think there's that one home run hire that San Francisco is going there. And the second layer to that beyond like, oh, who do they get to replace Steve Wilkes is the question that I have in my head, which is like, is Kyle Shanahan's job that insecure that he has to just fire a coach as a fall guy? Like, I don't think of Kyle Shanahan's job being at all insecure, even after he kind of didn't know the overtime rules, which, by the way, is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. We didn't talk about this because we didn't know about it when we did the, the NFL Monday podcast after the Super Bowl. The fact that they didn't know the overtime rules is amazing because we were on that podcast talking about there's no data sample size to determine whether or not you should take the ball first or go for second. I know a lot of people were citing the the college football overtime rule where everyone takes the ball second because you want to know what your opponent did on the first drive of the game. And, and Kyle Shanahan's rationale of we wanted the ball third when it got to sudden death wasn't necessarily the correct one because the game becomes sudden death as soon as the second possession takes over. It's either the game ends after that possession or they finish with exactly the same point total as you, at which point then, yes, you get a third possession. But sudden death begins on the second possession. And so it's super-duper interesting because there there was no sample size to work with in the new overtime rule. And I looked at, at Shanahan and justified it like, okay, you take the ball first, you go down, you score a touchdown, awesome. Kansas City claimed that their strategy was they were going to score a touchdown and then they were they're going to go for two. Which, by the way, if you're San Francisco... You kind of like your odds on we get one play from the two-yard line to determine the Super Bowl. If you would have told San Francisco going into that game, you get one play from the two-yard line, and if you stop Kansas City, you win the Super Bowl. I think San Francisco would have taken that. I know Kyle Shanahan's the king of game theory of just like running, you know, sitting on the ball, running clock, running clock, running clock, control time of possession, an obsession with time of possession. But I honestly look at that and think they would have taken the odds, even if it was less than 50% that they would have gotten the stop. I think they would have taken those odds of you get one play to stop Kansas City from the two yard line to win the Super Bowl. But I bring that up to say, like, it wasn't so crazy that San Francisco chose to take the ball first. In terms of not knowing, you know, giving the other team the opportunity to know what they need to do 
when they're driving down the field. And that very much helped Kansas City because Kansas City had a fourth and one where they ran a read option with Patrick Mahomes. And if they had gotten the ball first, there's a chance they might have punted on that fourth and one where Patrick Mahomes had the ball. I don't know if they would have or not. It's just a possibility to throw out there. Or maybe they call a different play call if they know that they have to score on that possession. But I bring all that up to say that that Kansas City... Getting the ball second ended up winning them the Super Bowl, and maybe that's the drive that leads to Steve Wilkes, you know, the tipping point on Steve Wilkes getting fired. But I didn't think that, like, if this is just, oh, I need a fall guy, I think Kyle Shanahan's job security is a little bit above needing a fall guy as the defensive coordinator walks out the door. So my guess is that the issue is with Steve Wilkes and the players on that defense. Like, I was watching the championship parade, and I... I, I can't remember the Kansas City player who was speaking at the podium, but he had a uh, he was wearing the championship belt. I can't remember if that was Snead or whoever it was, but they had the championship belt and they were saying on the podium that, you know, Spags just signed an extension, Steve Spagnolo, and he's going to stay here, and he had a shirt that said in Spags we trust. Although you couldn't read the the we trust part cuz it was covered by this giant championship belt that he had. But he had a shirt that said, in Spags, we trust. And I just don't think the Niners were riding for Steve Wilkes that same way, even if they win that Super Bowl. So maybe it's it's more Wilkes and the players than it is Shanahan needs a fall guy. The way that like Sean McDermott needed a fall guy when they fired Ken Dorsey, despite the fact that they had a top five offense in the NFL and just lost on some pretty fluky results early on in the season. I don't think it was that dramatic for the I don't think it was that dramatic for Kansas for San Francisco. I don't think it was like, oh, we need a fall guy because my job security is being in question. I don't I don't think that's the case for Shanahan. I think Shanahan's gonna be there for a very long time. I also saw someone on the internet bring up the point that Kyle Shanahan is basically like two thousand and nine Andy Reid. <laughs> And now I, I just can't get that out of my head because that's so funny to think about that Shanahan has now made it to four NFC championship games in six years as 49er head coach. Four NFC championship games in six years. Andy Reid made it to four NFC championship games in five years at the beginning of his career in Philadelphia. They made one Super Bowl in Philly, lost to the Patriots. San Francisco's made two Super Bowls, lost both to Kansas City, you know, the dynasties of their era. And by the way, both of them had pretty good quarterbacks, but not quarterbacks that were good enough, you know, once Andy Reid got Patrick Mahomes to create a dynasty that dominates all the other teams and turns, you know, coaches like Kyle Shanahan into what Andy Reid was on Philadelphia, which was always second place to the team that would go on to win the Super Bowl. Which, by the way, is super apt in this case because even the the years that the 49ers didn't win the Super Bowl, they lost to the Rams, who won the Super Bowl. Very similar one-off championship to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of 2002, who beat the Eagles in the NFC Championship game. And the, the Niners lost to the Eagles in 2022 very similar to that 03 Carolina Panthers team that kind of came out of nowhere and went to the Super Bowl and then was never close to getting back to the Super Bowl in the entire time that Steve Smith and Julius Peppers were there 
in Carolina. Very similar kind of, you know, dynamic there, and then, you know, gets to the Super Bowl, loses to Mahomes the same way that he got to the Super Bowl and loses to Tom Brady and the loses to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in their third Super Bowl. Yeah, Kyle Shanahan, now that I'm talking it out, Kyle Shanahan is basically just 2005 Andy Reid at this point, and that's just kind of hilarious to think about in real time. Just kind of goddamn hilarious to think about in real time that Kyle Shanahan is just Andy Reid in 2006. And I bring all that up to say Kyle Shanahan's going to have like seven more years to figure this thing out with San Francisco. Because I, I trust that that dude is going to be able to figure some of this out with the offense. Like some of the some of the the faults in the championship game, missed blocks, play calls that should have gone to Brandon Ayuk that Brandon Ayuk seems to be pissed about. Like they're, they're going to figure that out if you give them enough chances. If you give them enough cracks at the bat, and the talented roster that they had this year that took Kansas that, that went to overtime in the Super Bowl the best team Kyle Shanahan has ever had in his time in anywhere with with Atlanta with uh the 49ers he had some other stops in Washington and Cleveland so obviously not as good as those guys but this the this the best team Kyle Shanahan's ever had and maybe Kyle Shanahan's ever going to have cuz like going into Christmas they had like the highest DVOA of any NFL team since like the 2005 season like this this was an all-time great team in the regular season this year and that team coasted to the Super Bowl. I know they were down by 17 points to the Lions. And I know they were down double digits to the Packers. But that team beat both of those teams because they were like, oh shit, we're losing? Well, we're just bigger, stronger, and faster and have more stars than these teams. So why don't we just play like we're bigger, stronger, faster, and have more stars than all of these teams in the NFC? And that's not going to change in one year. As long as the Niners don't fall back to the pack, which... You know, granted, Rick Armstead is going to have surgery on a torn meniscus, and he might not be back next year, and Chase Young probably won't be back next year, and they got to make a decision on Ayuk, who seems to be pissed. So, like, maybe this is where some of the the brain drain kind of comes in as the star players kind of disperse a little bit as, as the team has to make difficult decisions in a salary cap sport, but... For the most part, that San Francisco team probably won't lose enough talent to fall back to the pack. They had five all pro players on offense on offense they had five of the 11 positions an all pro player and that doesn't even include Brock Purdy who was like top five in the MVP voting this year they had five they had Juszczyk all pro fullback they had Ayuk and D, uh Ayuk all pro receiver Trent Williams all pro offensive tackle uh, Christian McCaffrey all-pro running back and Debo Samuel who if it wasn't for his injury probably would have made all-pro instead of just a pro bowl like the 49ers were so goddamn good that doesn't even factor in Traverius Ward and Fred Warner and Nick Bosa on defense who are also all-pros like they're so goddamn good they're so goddamn good and they went to overtime of the Super Bowl this year they're obviously an incredibly good team and I trust that Kyle Shanahan's the dude to figure out those that offense stuff. I mean, that dude has proven time and time again that he's one of these these top of the line coaches. I mean, that dude, what he was the guy who two years ago we were like, oh, he just gets interchangeable running backs and makes them succeed. And you said, you know what we're gonna do? 
we're going to go trade for Christian McCaffrey, an indispensable running back who's going to get the bulk of our carries, and he's going to lead the league in rushing, and he's going to be this bell cow running back that wins Offensive Player of the Year. Because we can do it with the, the value at the running back position, but watch what happens when we get an actual Hall of Fame caliber running back in the door. Look what happens when we get one of the top four backs in the entire league on our team. Watch him win Offensive Player of the Year in his first full season in San Francisco. Like, Shanahan knows how to adapt and change this offense. People call him the genius of the wonder kid and all that stuff. And I think that, that given 15 years, because he's only been in the job for six, given 15 years, he will figure out some of the things that Andy Reid figured out after years of making mistakes in the playoffs. Trust me, he's going to figure some of that stuff out. At least I have better faith in him than I do in all but three coaches in the NFL. Because even in 2005, like people were talking about Bill Cower as the coach who was a, a Hall of Famer down the line. Sean Payton was this wonder kid coach. Um, I bring all this up to say, like, even if Sean McVay is regarded as a quote-unquote better coach than Kyle Shanahan, that doesn't mean Kyle Shanahan won't also have just a tremendous amount of success as the years go on. It doesn't doesn't mean at all that they're putting a cap or a ceiling on what Kyle Shanahan is capable of accomplishing. Because I think Kyle Shanahan is basically just 2006 Andy Reid, and that's why I don't think this firing of a defensive coordinator is like a, oh, I got to save face after, you know, we kind of made an incorrect decision on the overtime rules and we didn't prepare ourselves. And now we're looking up and, oh, we've blown three leads of double digits in the Super Bowl in seven years, going back to his time with the Atlanta Falcons. Like he, he's learning from a lot of these mistakes. And by the way, they've gotten progressively closer, right? It was 28 to three blowing the lead. And losing in overtime to the Patriots, it was then being up 20 to 10 in the fourth quarter. And then this time it was, we went to overtime and lost with like three seconds left in the first overtime period. Like you look at that and you, you, you stop and think like, oh yeah, this team is getting closer. But the thing that sucks is that this was the most talented team they're probably ever going to have probably because it's going to be pretty damn hard to be more talented than the team that they just put forward this past year. But who knows? They've pulled it off before. They got Trent Williams for a third round pick. They got Christian McCaffrey for, you know, essentially two day three, uh, sorry, day two day two draft picks. They've pulled crazy shit out of their hat before they've, they've stolen from Washington and stolen from Carolina and the crappy organizations of the league. There's no reason to say they can't pull the trigger and do it again, but this this team can absolutely get back to the Super Bowl, but it just I don't think will be as dominant as it was this year. I just don't think that's possible given the talent pool that they're going to have to replace in one off season. But hey, we'll we'll see what happens, man. They absolutely could pull off something remarkable or incredible like that. We'll just have to wait and see how all of this pools together. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have got. Episodes coming at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, along with Wired Up podcasts coming out periodically throughout the weekends that you guys can absolutely check out. Also, check out the episodes from last week. Our NFL, 
Our Super Bowl Monday podcast was absolutely great in that game analysis. I am really proud of that episode we did. I hope you guys go and check that out. Our conversation with Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo last week was absolutely fantastic. Just go. We have an NBA trade deadline breakdown. We're going to do a whole bunch of NBA podcasts and college basketball podcasts next week. I hope that you guys continue to check those out. Um, we're, we're kind of kicking it into basketball mode because I am so dang excited to start talking about basketball here over the next couple of weeks. Thank you guys for your continued support. We will talk to you again next week. And in the meantime, take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.